Welcome to the Cannabis Data Science Meetup Group. Should be a really good day today. We're going to pick up with looking at market performance. We've got a good crowd today, so welcome to the group. So normally I go on a spiel about economics, data science, and the cannabis industry. We've got some new people here today. So if you're interested, we could do a round of introductions either now or at the end. So, Andrew and our new guest, you're welcome to chime in and introduce yourselves because we're well, we'd love to do a nice back and forth if you have any questions or want to steer the conversation in any way. Uh, sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. Uh, I'm just like a, a student working on a master's in data science. I was just looking for things to do. And I saw this, uh, this meetup and it fit my schedule. So, Decided to hop in. Well, awesome to have you, Andrew. Always Join. have a lot of people interested, nice to meet you all. interested in data science. So feel free to chime in at any point if you have any questions or ideas or anything you want to talk about. With, without further ado, I'll go ahead and share with you what I've prepared today. So, so we've been looking at predicting market performance. So this is the data and forecasts we were looking at and preparing last week. So we were looking at cannabis sales here in Massachusetts, which we saw are going up and up and up. However, there have been turbulent periods. So we'll go into it, but our data is, could be biased by these past turbulent events. So for example, this period, this dip in 2021 in January of 2021 was used in our forecasts. And as you can see, our forecasts for 2022 also dip in January. So if you're interested in doing forecasts of your own, it could be interesting to limit your forecast training data to perhaps just the past six months you're not going to have, you're going to have really wide confidence bounds because you're going to have only a handful of observations. Well, maybe more than a handful. You could have a couple dozen if you're doing weekly. So well, you could have a, a number of observations there and, you know, that could be more representative. And so this is where we were starting to realize that there's a lot of assumptions being made when you start to forecast. So we want to dive into some of these assumptions today and want to spend a bit of time today on some of the economic theory to explain why we're looking at these data points, right? So it makes sense why we may want to look at sales and plants grown here in Massachusetts. 
right? So you want to look at the retail side and the wholesale side, see how the producers are doing. And so we looked at, okay, you know, how many retailers are there in Massachusetts and how many cultivators are there in Massachusetts? Lovely. Um. Okay, bear with me. Okay. Itself, we're going to use a different presentation and style next week. So, you know, we gave this one its chance. Okay, so we're looking at retailers and cultivators, and we did a forecast for each. Note, these are difficult series to predict because there's actually not a lot of variability in the series themselves. So there could be other underlying factors, which one would expect explaining the number of retailers and the number of cultivators. So this depends largely on the Cannabis Commission in Massachusetts, their licensing process, who they choose to license. Of course, it does matter to a certain extent on how many applicants are being submitted, how many applications are being submitted. Our prediction, crude as it may be, predicts that there may be a modest increase in retailers or potentially even a modest decrease. So we're predicting anywhere between around 350 to around 420, 25 retailers or so in the market by the end of 2022 and right now there's around 375 380 retailers so and we oh no um okay so we're having it doesn't not like the zoom um, okay, so with cultivators, we're actually predicting a slightly higher growth in retailers. So I forget the precise number, but we're hovering between 250 and 300 at the moment, closer to 300. And we're predicting, as compared to retailers, uh, higher growth in cultivation. So we'll, we'll predict that, at, you know, at the higher end, you may see around 350 cultivators in Massachusetts by the end of 2022. And on the lower end, we're still predicting around 300. So we're, we're predicting a growth in cultivation one way or the other. So we'll see if that pans out. And like we said, a lot of this depends on the regulation. We've also got, this happened again. We've also got 
uh, pardon me for this uh, poor presentation here. Like we said, we're going to use a different presenting software next week. All right. So, uh, so we're going to, so we're looking at sales and number of retailers, looking at plants and cultivators. Well, we realized we can create a metric that perhaps not many people have looked at. And it can provide some nice insights for us. So we've got cannabis sales, we've got retailers. Well, let's create a new statistic, average sales per retailer. So it would be awesome if we actually had sales data for each of the retailers and the data exists out there. I'm sure the state of Massachusetts has that data. However, we'll make do with what we have. And so we can just divide the average um, sales by retailers here. Um, and Control L. And this is going to be an interesting metric. And I'll explain a bit more further on, but this is going to be our first metric where we sort of start to get at market performance. So how is the market performing for these parties? that are in the market. And what are some of the parties? Well, there's the retailers and the cultivators are two of them, right? And so how are these retailers doing over time? And so we see that in the beginning, you, you have, you know, modest, weekly sales at retailers. So it starts around 20,000 per week per retailer on average. Some are obviously above average, some are below average. And this is climbing, right? And you get around 50,000 per week per retailer. Then of course, retail closes in Massachusetts for a two month span in April and May of 2020. Average sales per retailer is takes a hit when they reopen. So when they reopen, they're below, you know, the 50K a week. However, they get back up to the 50K, you know, in just a matter of a couple of weeks. And then once again, you're on, uh, you know, a, a modest trajectory up. Once again, Rocky Boat, in spring, well, I guess this would be winter slash early spring of 2021. You have a rocky time in the market here in Massachusetts. Like I'm going to have to do a bit more historical digging, right? And so this is what's so cool about economics, right? Is not only are you studying economic theory, you know, you're studying statistics, but you're also a student of history, right? 
because we need to look in the history books, in the newspapers, and find out what was happening at this time. In specific, what was happening in Massachusetts at this time. So, you know, if you were... I want to use a better word than entrepreneurial, but you know, if you're you know, a go-getter, then you can go hit the local Massachusetts newspapers in this time period and try to f figure out, just kind of like look at the local stories and kind of see what's happening. So this is where, right? So they're not going to talk on a national scale. Not They're not probably not going to talk in the national newspapers about cannabis markets being closed in Massachusetts, right? But right, if you look in the local newspapers or this or that, you know, there could have been townships or counties where businesses may have, um, you know, locked down or, or I'm just conjecturing, you know, who knows what happened? And, you know, there could have been a hot, late and viroid may have hit particularly hard or, you know, who, who knows? Uh, there could have been a tourism drought or there's a, a lot of factors. So long story short, check out the history books and then, you know, try to incorporate history into your analysis. Our main takeaway was average sales per retailer. It's actually, it's, it's continued to increase and it's, you know, getting substantial, right? You've got average sales around 75 or so thousand a week, you know, not shabby. And this is where if you're a student of economics, it would be worthwhile to compare this to other industries. So what's the average sale in the restaurant industry? What's the average sales for, you know, an agricultural producer of another agricultural crop? You know, so you can start comparing cannabis to other industries here. But what we noticed and what we would like to measure, and if you tune into Saturday morning statistics, we do this more rigorously, but you can actually see if there's a change in factors or perhaps a volatility during this period, right? So there may have been an underlying structural change. And what I notice is this period's much more volatile than the prior periods, right? So especially 2019 to 2020, this, it was just a, fairly steady period of growth, right? I'm sure during that time, they, they felt like things were tumultuous, but they're sure, they're sure not as tumultuous, um, uh, arguably as, as 2021. So like, look at this volatility you have here. It's like, yeah, average sales may, may be higher on average, but you have incredible volatility. This may make it difficult for your general managers may make it tricky to stock inventory correctly, right? If you're having sales peak one week and then they drop off the cliff the next week, well, you know, you may 
overstock your stores. You may have your stores understocked when sales spike. Um, so that's why it leads to the importance of forecasting. And here we did a medium term forecast. And like we, I think I brought this up in Saturday morning statistics, but if you're a general manager, it would be helpful to do a in-depth, say 30 day forecast. So here we used weekly data. If you're a general manager, it could be useful to just use daily data and just do a 30 day forecast. So that way you can use day of the week effects and get a real nice prediction for the coming month. But here we just looked at the coming year because we're interested in kind of the bigger scheme trajectory here in the, the cannabis data science meetup group, right? So we've been looking at the, we're trying to look at the performance of these industries. And so what we're noticing is the retailers are performing, one would argue better and better, but kind of we've got some, some volatility issues that may need to get ironed out. Um, okay, let's see if we can. For the cultivation, cultivation's actually kind of got a different story going on where you've got cultivation getting up to speed slowly. And this is actually kind of what you see in a lot of cannabis markets, right? So it's going to take your cultivation, you know, a good six months or so to get up to speed for the market. So this is essentially people getting plants in the ground. Um, so you don't, you know, it takes time to get these facilities built, get your doors opened, get the lights on, get the employees hired, you know, get your HVAC system installed. You know, there's a lot of preparation, get your permits, right? So it's, it's a whole long game, right? So people think, oh, I'm just gonna get my license and you know start growing a thousand plants tomorrow well that's not that's not the case you've got you've got to jump through a lot of hoops you've got to get your local permits you know you've got to make sure your license is locked in you have to get your employees you have to get all your capital equipment capital equipment may require funding right and then funding is an entirely different can of worms in the cannabis industry as it is in other industries because you know it's hard, it, you can't just can't get conventional loans from large banks like you may be able to in other agricultural industries long story short takes cultivation a little while to get what i would call up to speed right so here you just see this exponential growth in the number of plants in the ground. And this is the tracked number of plants. You can break this down by vegetative and flowering. So if you've got more insight than I do, then by all means, you can look at the data slightly differently. But in general, the trajectory of the number of plants is the same or similar. But long story short, plants, 
get up to around this you know steady level of 500 to around 600 plants per cultivator and that's quite steady so you do see what you could probably estimate you know a modest trend in that data but once again you've got you know maybe minor cyclical business cycle trends going on but even with what, what what's interesting right is there's not a dramatic effect on the number of plants in 2020 or really in january of 2021 so the cultivators and this would make sense, right? If you've got your cultivation set up, you've got your plants in the ground, you know, it's not even really going to be that big of a factor if, if retail's closed. And in fact, you even see a little bit of an uptick. So maybe people even took that, took that time to get even more plants in the ground. Um, so, you know, the plants per cultivator, so the cultivators, their production, it looks like, stayed steady. And in fact, it looks like they realized they needed to turn on the gas in spring of 2021. And then this makes me think that there's all of a sudden an increase in demand um, in the Massachusetts market. And so once again, Time to hit the history books, time to hit the newspapers. What was going on in Massachusetts in mid to late 2021? I, it'd be real interesting to see and you know, see if there's a lot of articles talking about cannabis cultivation. So once again, you see this large, growth in the number of plants per cultivator, average number. And so once again, hedge this in that, right, there could be some cultivators that just have a ginormous amount of plants and some that don't have very many. So this could just be the entrance of mega growers. You know, that's not impossible. That just like some mega growers just came online here in late 2021. That's not impossible. However, the story I generally been telling is that it looks like cultivators have sort of been exploiting economies of scale. There's increased demand. They're growing more plants. However, it looks like they may have kind of reached a peak and maybe may, may cutting back a little bit. So I think I think this is going to be one of the hardest series to predict coincidentally because we don't, it looks like things are changing kind of recently, right? It looks like really in the past month or two, there's been almost like a structural change here in cultivation. So the other series, well, same for plants. So. You know, the other series had their own structural breaks. 
but for whatever reason, there's something going on in the cultivation. side of the market and that's going to be interesting to see what happens in 2022 our forecasts because there's such a dip we predict there's going to be a large dip in 2022 i would love to rework these forecasts and not have such a dramatic dip because just my bayesian prior is that there's not going to be this dramatic dip in January. Like I predict a modest dip, but not one that dramatic. And this is what's cool about Bayesian statistics is you acknowledge your prior biases um, and you can kind of, you know, use them to make better forecasts um, if you want to boil it down that way. Um, but tune in to Saturday morning statistics and you can get a lot about um, the nerdy aspects of the statistics. Long story short, our predictions are that the average plants for, per cultivator is going to fall back to its pre-2021 level where you're going to see around 600 plants per cultivator. I think this is going to be one of, like I said, I think this is going to be one of the more interesting series to follow because, right, uh, the, the supply of cannabis is going to be a major determination of the performance of the market, right? So that's going to determine a lot of the, of the prices. And and essentially the profits for the retailers and the cultivators and any surplus that will be had by the consumers. Talking about profits and consumers, well, let's go ahead and do a little bit of a history slash economics lesson because we've been neglecting the economics that's underlying our analysis. And I wanted to give you a bit of a history lesson about where this all began. Some of the people that pioneered the work, pioneered sort of the type of analysis that we're going to be doing and what people look at. We don't have to look at these things necessarily, but it's just interesting to look at the history of, of where these tools came about from. So long story short, you have a professor, Edward S. Mason at Harvard University. He's the first one who's really extending upon sort of the theory of the firm. And what's the theory of the firm? Well, this is where you sort of determine, okay, you know, what gets produced internally at an organization and what gets bought and sold on the open market, right? So sometimes firms outsource and sometimes they do things in-house, right? And a lot of times economics sort of ignores, you know, things that are going on in-house, right? Because we're just looking at, a lot of times economics is just looking at transactions between parties. So you're just looking at, say 
producer A buying and selling it from producer B. Well, you don't really take into consideration that you know producer A may be taking actions so that they can then internally produce what producer B is producing and just do things in-house. And you see companies do this. So you see acquisitions. You see this a lot with the, the large te technology companies where large technology company A will acquire small, you know, small technology company B and then just sort of bring that in-house. So that's the theory of the firm has a lot to do about costs. So what's the cost of doing things internally versus buying it on the market? Well, this leads to, okay, well, what's the layout of the market? You know, what, what are the size of these players in the market? And how do they conduct themselves? And what's the outcome, AKA the performance? So we're looking at how things are structured, how firms behave and people, and then what's the outcome? How do the firms perform? And what's the consequence on like society as a whole? So consumers. And then that's where we sort of get I'll talk a bit more about Joseph Bain and George Stigler coming up, but those are two economists who really led the work forward in a, you know, a similar vein as we've been doing. Where this has led, well, it's essentially led to antitrust policies, which you know, they may not have come about otherwise. And so what they noticed was, okay, As they argued, markets become more concentrated. Well, if there's only a small number of players, it's going to essentially be cheaper to collude. So let's say there's a fixed cost. So you have to pay people off to collude. Well, the more people there are, the more people you have to pay off thus the higher the cost of collusion. So the argument is the more concentrated the market is, the more likely collusion is to occur because there's a lower cost. And if collusion occurs, that can have an adverse effect on society. So essentially consumers are gonna face a higher price and lose consumer surplus course there's a counter argument right the counter argument is well if you're naturally efficient right so if you do things better than other people in the industry well you're just going to naturally gain a market share and just because you have a large market share that doesn't mean you're going to collude right just because you're the only or one of the only players in a market that doesn't dictate that you have to collude with people. So that's sort of the counter argument. Um, the argument is, well, that's inevitably what we see. 
And this is sort of where you kind of can get into psychology of groups. And once again, you know, economics, we like to, to dabble. And of course, you have to look at uh, the psychology of these agents. And I think it's real interesting, right? And so that's where psychologists can kind of help out is, okay, like, you know, do you see, you know, like bad behavior slash collusion in, you know, small groups versus large groups? Um, and just my personal belief is, you know, the more people you add to a group, the, har the harder it is to, say, collude and do, do bad actions, right? Because there's, there's more people, you don't know which ones are, you know, going to turn you in. Uh, I don't know. And so I think there's more work that can be studied there, but that's sort of, that's a major pinning point underlying market concentration analysis is because the implicit argument you're making when you're measuring market concentration is that an increase in market concentration could be bad for consumers. Meanwhile, you know, a lower degree of market concentration could be beneficial for consumers. But like I said, the counter argument is if you actively work to curtail concentration, then you could be curtailing efficiencies that would have, you know, otherwise been gained. So, so the idea is you don't necessarily want to limit concentration just for the sake of limiting it, but you may want to keep an eye out on concentrated markets because it may be ripe for collusion. And th this was a lot of the work that was done by Bain. Joseph Bain. Stigler looked a lot at regulatory, regulatory capture. And this is, of course, you know, Stigler uh, taught partially for, at the University of Chicago. So this is a, a quite a, you know, University of Chicago type of stance on regulation so just kind of keep that in mind university of chicago school economists are typically not in favor of overarching regulations um, that's sort of a that's sort of a generalization and it may be more true historically than present day but that's what you see a lot of with these economists but they make good arguments and so you can't just ignore them Right. So you that's sort of the point about history, right? You have to, you know, study the people and the points they they make. Um, whether you agree with them or not, you know, these were people that you know led a lot of the groundwork. So it's just interest, you know, interesting and arguably important to to study them. That way we, you know, you kind of know what you're you know, talking about when we look, we went, so that way when we're talking about, you know, market performance in the cannabis industry, you know, we actually know about the history of 
the first people who studied market performance. And one of these people was George Stigler. And his argument was you have to watch out for essentially regulation for regulation's sake. Um, which which kind of is part of this counter argument here where you don't want to just curtail concentration for concentration's sake. Essentially, what Stigler argued is the regulatory agencies, so in this case, it would be you know the Massachusetts Cannabis Commission, they can be captured so this would be, you know, lobbyists kind of persuading the government bodies to essentially enact regulations, you know, at their behest. So they're sort of, you know, nudging the politicians. So they may take them out to lunch and say, oh, you know, don't you think it would be a good idea if we did X, Y, and Z? Well, you know, X, Y, and Z may be easy for that producer to do but it may be tough for their competition to do so next thing you know you we've got a regulation that you so one so for example like for there's like for regulation for delivery that you have to have like four four cameras on your delivery vehicle or something like that and That does seem like, you know, like one could argue, yes, that is for the public safety, but, you know, one has to wonder, um, you know, did somebody just already have a vehicle set up with four cameras and they say, oh, you know, hey, don't you think it would be a good idea if everybody had four cameras on their vehicle? And then the regulator says, oh, yeah, you know, that does sound like you know, a good idea, you know, it sounds like that would be safe and for the best of everybody. You know, now they pass a, a, a law that says, okay, all vehicles have to have four cameras on them. Well, now if you're starting a delivery company, that's essentially going to be a cost to entry. You're going to have to install, you know, four cameras on your vehicle. So that may not be the best example but you may be able to think of better ones. And so by all means, um, you know, brainstorm <laughs> for better or for worse. Um, but that's sort of the idea is, you know, producers will advocate for regulations that they think they can jump through. So they think they can meet that regulatory requirement but that regulatory requirement may box out competition. And you don't have to take my word for it. So if you, a lot of the times, if you go to, so I've attended a handful of cannabis conferences and you'll talk, you hear seminars and people will be pretty upfront. Producers will be, quite upfront that, you know, they recommend, you know, going and, you know, sitting in on the, the agency meetings 
and you know being you know the the squeaky wheel in these regulators ears and i mean one almost can't necessarily fault them i mean they're parties in the industry and if they're trying to maximize their profits and that's how they can do so then that's how they're going to act um so I think it just should be something kind of taken into consideration. And the long story short is, I think consumers should be at the table, right? Because I heard once, you know, if you're not at the table, you're for lunch. <laughs> so, you know, if they have these meetings and it's just, a, the, you know, the regulatory agency, you know, and their representatives, and then you just have the producers. Well, the consumers aren't there at the table, right? And the consumers have a stake in the, the market. So, you know, they, be, they may be getting the short end of the stick, right? And so the, you know, I think, uh, you know, and that's ultimately up to the consumers, you know, to uh, to to get to the table um, and to, you know, to push for, forth what they may wish. Or for or for other producers, right? If you're a smaller producer, then, you know, you may want to go to the, the board meetings and whatnot and speak up for yourself, too. And because, like I said, you know, the large companies, you can count on it that they're going to be at the meetings. And they're going to be advocating for policies that may, they may on their face seem like they may be beneficial to the public. However, they may be cleverly designed to box out competition. Um, so I'm not going to hammer that home too much further, but you know, something to take into consideration. Well, we've talked about the economic theory. And I think it's kind of, you know, it can only get us so far, you know, you can kind of game theory it out so much, you know, what if player A does X, what if player Y does Y, and so, so on and so forth. But at a certain point, you actually have to look at the empirics, right? You actually have to look at how many firms are in the market, what's the output, what are the prices? And that's what's called performance. So how are we going to go about measuring market performance? Well, we can look at profitability, how profitable are the firms? This is tricky but we've kind of shown that we can almost tackle this so we can make an estimate of profitability it would be awesome to actually have everyone's balance sheets um, and actually have an actual measure of everyone's profit or loss that would be cool to do really rich statistics but you know no one's going to just turn over their balance sheets like that so 
we can estimate it so we can look at the revenues we can look at average revenue and we can try to estimate the prices of inputs and we can estimate profitability once again with concentration the state of massachusetts could look at this because they probably have the sales per retailer and so on and so forth so they could see if the market's becoming more concentrated or not over time or less concentrated over time we can just look at the number of players in the market and we can even see if average profits are going up or down right so if average profits are going up well, the market may be getting a bit more concentrated, right? And, you know, these players may be, seek, may be finding a way to squeak price up and up and up above cost. If average profits are going down, the market may be becoming more concentrated over time. I mean, less concentrated over time and price it is falling closer and closer and closer to average cost right because that's sort of the theory of economics is given perfect competition price will fall to average cost however you know we don't ever have quite perfect competition right because we don't ever have perfect information or there's structural barriers to entry or there's transaction costs and so on and so forth. So well, and that brings us to our next bullet point. Well, it's useful to measure these barriers to entry. And this is a bullet point I wanted to say is understudied. So how do you even go about measuring barriers to entry? This is difficult, can be arbitrary yet valuable so the only idea i've had so far is maybe you could look at license fees by state and see if that affects the structure the performance in any way but yet again it's really hard to measure like the license fees it's hard to get a gauge of Right. So, for example, how do you compare apples to apples? So the different states have, have different licensing structures, different fee structures. How do you measure the difficulty of an application? You know, what if one application takes you six months, you know, and the other one takes you a year? You know, how do you, you know, go about measuring some of these barriers to entry so worthwhile if you're up to the challenge and then finally there's this measure of the total factor of productivity and so this is something a measure that was put forth by joseph stigler or he he was at least one who utilized it and that's essentially what we've been estimating and that's just centrally sales per labor and sales per capital and so we've been getting at those measures and 
we actually kind of nearing the end, but just in the, the last bit of time here, let's get at those measures. So for those of you that are just joining us, we've been working with this data from Massachusetts. You can find the data through the Socrata API. And I'm not, please tune into prior episodes or Saturday morning statistics and, you know, I can help you or email me or what have you and can help walk you through this. But just for, since we only have a limited amount of time, long story short, we read in the data here from Massachusetts. We create forecasts using an ARIMA model. And we forecast sales. We forecast plants, employees retailers, cultivators, and total licensees. And that allows us to predict sales per retailer, plants per cultivator, and employees per licensee. And so these are the, you know, the forecasts that we have plotted at the, at, that I showed you at the beginning. And then, oh yes, the total factor of productivity, right? And so this is where, remember I showed you the Cobb-Douglas production function in prior weeks? So here we're essentially estimating a Cobb-Douglas production function for the cannabis industry, where we've got output, Y, so this is going to be our sales times technology. And I want to stress this point real quick. Technology we're taking as a constant. Well, guess what? Technology is not constant. And this is where you can do interesting analysis with your production function. So one of my favorites is just saying, like you can create what's called re re regime models. So A naught and A one. So you could say, okay, you know, what if technology switches between two different regimes, right? And so that's where we could say, oh, you know, maybe we had one technology here from 2019 to 2020. And we may have had, you know, a different technology regime going on here in 2021. Um, and technology is sort of this abstract word uh, that economists use to just capture everything else besides from capital and labor. Um, so this is sort of the state of the economy. So. A is sort of a big deal, right? We're just going to take it as constant, but I just want to stress on the fact that if you let technology be dynamic, 
you can add a lot you can make your analysis even that much more in depth but we're just going to take technology's constant and we're just going to say okay you know labor and capital which we are proxying as plants is productive to a certain degree alpha for the plants beta for the labor and with this production function which we expect to be concave so to have diminishing marginal returns so the more and more we produce the incremental amount is less and less yet always increasing so long story short we expect alpha plus beta to be less than or equal to one and then empirically they've measured alpha there was somewhere here but like I said, Wikipedia is not the best source, but it's just what I'm using for today. But historically, they were measuring, I think they were seeing alpha to be 0.3 and beta to be about 0.7. So real quick, in just a matter of minutes, let's see if we can you know, measure some of these factors here. So going to basically just supplement the data here with weekly hours from the Federal Reserve. So this is just the, you know, the average weekly hours of somebody in Massachusetts. So, you know, they're working around 33 hours per week, then they're going up to around 34 or so. And the reason we're doing this is because I'm using hours, total hours worked as a measure of labor. And the reason I'm doing that is because the we can estimate the price of labor. And if we use hours, well, that's dollars per hour, right? And a lot of people get paid in dollars per hour. Um, your wage. So, so that's why we're estimating that. Um, so long story short, you've got Y, K, and L. We're going to limit it here to, we only have weekly hours through the end of August, and we're going to exclude the turbulent period. Um, so actually, we're actually including the turbulent period. We're excluding the, we're basically starting from when things open back up after the, um, May of 2020. So long story short, right? These are basically the total total factors of productivity right here. So that's why P, so this, so you'll hear economists say, oh, you know, YPL, KPL, or uh, YPK and whatnot. Um, so these are, you know, measures that, um, you know, economists like to look at. So here's, you know, YPL. Um, so that output per labor. And so as you can see, like, 
you know, labor is just incredibly productive right when the industry starts, which you would expect, right? Everyone's coming online, you know, adding one more employee in those early days, but just really adding a lot. Um, But, you know, um, and, and, you know, this is something that uh, fluctuates. So, you know, something uh, worth looking at. Um, and then, you know, you can also look at, um, you know, YPK. And that's like essentially how productive your, you know, your plants are going to be. Once again, your plants are super valuable, right? When the industry starts. And, you know, if you look at the last 30 weeks, we've got a little bit of a negative trend here. Um, let's look at the last year. So here's, you know, the, this is basically, right, sales per plant. So a crude measure of how productive your plants are. Well, let's estimate this Cobb-Douglas production function real quick, like. Um, here I did it in a fancy way. Um, I'm going to uh, not do it this way. Um, uh, let's do log L. Um, log. Okay, so let's do it this way. Just bear with me real quick, and then we'll be uh, wrapping up here since we're at the end. Um, um, wait a second. Um, I think. One second, I just have to figure out how to make a, a quick array here with a constant in it. Um, okay, we may have to save this for next time, but I would like to run the regression. Um, Bear with me here. Um, okay, unfortunately, hold on. Let's see if we can't do this real quick. Okay, if I can make this in one minute, then we'll do it. If not, I'll save it for next time. Apologize that this wasn't already set up here. Okay, I think I may be able to do this for you real quick. Um, so let's just define our regressors here. Log K and log L. No promises, but we may be able to estimate alpha and beta real quick. Unfortunately, 
Okay, so unfortunately, unfortunately, I'm not able to uh, code this up for you real quick on the fly. Um, but that's okay um, because we can pick this back up next week. Um, just sometimes when I'm presenting, I just need to just sit down and think about the the code a little bit, a little bit more to just kind of know what I'm actually doing. So my apologies, but I'm just going to need to code this up for you. But long story short, we'll pick up with this next week and we're going to measure these total factors of productivity. So that way we can get our estimates of alpha and beta. And what's cool about measuring alpha and beta in the Cobb-Douglas production function is it will allow us to estimate the competitive wage rate as well as the rate of return on capital. Why is that cool? Well, one, we can compare the competitive wage rate in the cannabis industry to other industries, right? So you can look at the average wage of anything from say fast food to banking. So that way you can see where the cannabis industry workers fall out in the grand scheme of things. You can look at the interest rate, then this will be helpful for investors knowing, you know, should I invest in the cannabis industry and what rate of return should we expect? And it will let us measure or at least estimate profitability, right? Because now if we have a measure of average sales, well, we can then estimate average cost. And well, guess what? The difference between average sales and average cost is expected average profit. This isn't going to be the profit everybody's getting, but it's going to be what we would expect your average firm to make. And so then you can compare that to your own profit. So if you're a retailer in the space and we estimate average profits to be X, are you above or below? So then you can brag to your investors, hey, we're, you know, above expected profits or we're below expected profits. And, you know, you wouldn't be bragging about that, but you may be nudging, you may be uh, telling your general manager that um, and trying to, you know, bark, bark, bark at them to, uh, to uh, drum up sales a bit. So it's, you know, it's really helpful, right? Because, you know, you're not operating in a silo here you know you've you've got other players in the market and so as a retailer you want to know how you size up against your competition same with the cultivation cultivators you want to know how you size up so that's what we'll work on next week is actually measuring pro next week we'll estimate profitability by calculating these total factors of productivity. And then we can make statements 
about what we think about concentration and barriers to entry. So stay tuned for next week and I will iron out the estimation of these parameters for us. My apologies that I couldn't do it on the fly for today, but that's probably for the best because that way we can do it proper and thoroughly next week. And so next week we'll add a, at least two new series and forecasts. We'll add the competitive historic wage rate and the competitive interest rate for plants. So you can know what rate of return on average having one plant in the ground is. So that's where we'll pick up next week. Want to go ahead and thank everybody for attending. So we're in a little extra today. So any questions, comments, concerns, ideas from anyone from the group? On that case, I'm always here. Send me a message, send me an email, get in contact with Canalytics. We're always here to help the industry. So until next week, keep your nose to the grindstone. Stay productive, have fun, and enjoy yourselves. Thanks, Keegan. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Thank you very all right, much. All right, all. All right, all. Bye now.